Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good. I'm excited to be here this morning. We're continuing a series in the book of Daniel, and it's entitled this, Developing an Unshakable Hope in the Midst of Uncertain Times. Do we need hope that's unshakable? Yeah, because our world around us at times feels like it's crumbling, feels like it's without hope, feels like it's a, a mess, to be honest, right? And so we're diving in the book of Daniel, and we're learning and discovering from Daniel, from his experiences, from his friends' experiences in Babylon. They were exiles. They were, they were men who did not belong there. That was not their home. And yet God in his sovereignty had ordained that their lives be lived out in the midst of adversity, in the midst of a culture that did not accept or embrace the God of heaven, the God of the universe. They were called to be a light to that community, to that environment. And we learn from their lives what it looks like to build our lives into lives that have unshakable hope in the midst of such uncertainty that surround us. Amen? Amen. And so, how many of you guys have ever heard the expression, the writing's on the wall? Anybody ever heard that? Everybody who's over like 60, raise their hand. Mark, sorry, I called you out. No, but um, the writing's on the wall is an expression that has come into our vernacular as Americans, and it, and it derives from the, the chapter in the book of Daniel that we're going to look at this morning. Um, it's really referring to a moment in our experience where we realize that something, there's evidence that shows that something certain is about to take place. Something is going to happen, and we see the writing on the wall in advance. We can see the evidence that is being produced all around us that shows that this relationship's going to end. I've dated a few girls in my time, and there were times where the writing was on the wall. I was a jerk, an idiot, whatever it was, and this girl was about to dump me. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah? Or maybe, maybe I, I had this experience. I, I worked for an airline, and I, I ran a belt loader into the wing of an aircraft. Um, the writing was on the wall that my job was about to end. So we all have had those experiences in life where... Um, we have realized through the writing that's on the wall that something is about to happen, certainly happen in our lives and experience. And that's, that's basically what we're going to look at this morning in the book of Daniel chapter 5. Before um, we go there, I want to start in Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah lived um, about 70 years before the events we're going to look at this morning. Um, he lived through the Babylonian assault and the Babylonian conquest over Jerusalem. He was left there in Jerusalem to witness and to recount the events of God's judgment on his people, the Jews. Their nation was completely demolished. Their temple was ransacked. Their whole lives and their experience was coming to a place of judgment before the living God because of their sin and because of their actions as a people. And Jeremiah witnessed these things, and he lamented over these things. He even wrote a book called Lamentations in our Bibles. And he wrote these words concerning what would take place in the future. 
And there was hope in these words for the Jewish people that were experiencing what Babylon was doing to them at the time. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 8. Suddenly, Babylon fell and was shattered. Wail for her. Get balm for her wound. Perhaps she can be healed. We tried to heal Babylon, but she could not be healed. Abandon her. Let each of us go to his own land. For her judgment extends to the sky and reaches as far as the clouds. The Lord has brought our vindication. Come, let's tell in Zion what the Lord our God has accomplished. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has put it into the mind of the kings of the Medes because his plan is aimed at Babylon to destroy her. For it is the Lord's vengeance, vengeance for his temple. This morning in Daniel chapter 5, we are going to read the account It's an historical account, but it's also an inspired account. It is inspired because God himself was working through the prophet Daniel to write these words down. And it wasn't just to record some sort of historical event. It was for our benefit as his people in the church thousands of years later that these words were recorded. But this was the fulfillment in Daniel chapter 5. It's the fulfillment of these words that I just read in Jeremiah. God was about to wreak havoc on Babylon. Now, up until chapters 1 through 4, we were dealing with a king named Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember Nebuchadnezzar? So up until chapter 4, it's all about his reign in Babylon. He was the king that was in charge when they went into Jerusalem, and they they destroyed the temple of God. And they took Daniel and his companions into Jerusalem the land of Babylon. He was the king that had reigned and was on the throne for some 43 years, history tells us, of his reign. And yet when we come to Daniel chapter 5, we are way beyond the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to encounter a king in Babylon named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. And this took place some 70 years after the conquest of Jerusalem. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 1 that it says that Daniel and his companions were young men when they were taken out of their homeland to serve the king in Babylon. Many scholars think that that refers to a time period of somewhere between about 12 and 22. So there's about a 10-year range. We don't know the exact age of Daniel and his friends when they were taken. But we do know that these events in Daniel chapter 5 took place some 70 years later. Now, I want you to do your math real quick. Any math scholars in here? Add 70 to 12, and what do you get? 82. That means that Daniel, in chapter 5, is somewhere around 82 years old. Imagine how many in here are 82 or older. A few of us. Mark, you're not 82. (laughs) That's funny. Um, But but at that age, I mean, you feel like, man, my life's about done. I've, I've done all that I can do. And yet God was not finished with this man. As we're about to see in chapters 5 and chapter 6, Daniel still had things to accomplish for God and his kingdom. Now I'm going to go through the history of the Babylonian kings just to give us a perspective on what was taking place during the Babylonian Empire. First you have Nebuchadnezzar. 
It says uh, both historical records and the Word of God together give us a picture that he reigned for 43 years from about 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., Uh, B.C. being before Christ. Uh, So these are hundreds of years before Jesus would appear on earth. And then his son, his name is a nice name, Evil Merodach. Evil Merodach. That's a nice name. Who wants to name their kid Evil? Evil Knievel? No, Evil Merodach. He ruled only two years from 562 to 560. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar's son, was assassinated by his brother-in-law. He was literally, like, taken out by... Um, his, his sister's brother. And so when Nebuchadnezzar left the throne, there was a lot of instability that started to take over this Babylonian empire. There was a lot of unity around Nebuchadnezzar and his reign for 43 years, a lot of stability. But once he was off the earth, there was a lot of vying for power. Do we see that in our world today? Vying for power, cutthroat, whatever I got to do to be in control and to to be the one in charge. And this is what was taking place in that day. And so, Neraglazer, I can't even, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Neraglazer was the one who assassinated this guy. He was the brother-in-law, and he ruled for about four years. He's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39, uh, and he ruled from 560 B.C. down to 556 B.C. Now, when he was killed, his son, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce that name. Anybody, anybody want to try that? Yeah, that might be a good name to name your kid, you know, someday if you guys are having children. Uh, I can't pronounce that one, but um, that was a child king. He was literally like a king that was, came to the throne because his dad was killed. He died, and so he came to the throne, and he only ruled, scholars say, anywhere from two to nine months before he was assassinated. Right? And so there's a lot of vying for power, a lot of instability, and he was assassinated. And Nabonidus, I can kind of pronounce that one, Nabonidus was the one who took the throne. Now, Nabonidus ruled for 17 years, and his son is the man that we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 5. His son is Belshazzar, and Belshazzar was co-regent with his father. Now his father was all about expanding the kingdom, bringing it back to the former glory that they experienced under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so he was, he was away from the city of Babylon for most of his reign. Most of his 17 years, he was in Arabia. He was establishing all kinds of like um, treaties and experiencing warfare, and he was away from home. And so he left his son, Belshazzar, in the city of Babylon to sort of rule and reign alongside him, father and son together. And it's with this backdrop that we we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5. Now you need to understand one other thing as we enter chapter 5, that at this moment, the city of Babylon was under siege. It had been under siege for some time. Some scholars say up to a year this city had been besieged at this point. When we, when we read this story. And it was being besieged by the Medan and the Persian empires. They were after Babylon. They wanted to conquer it. They were rising to power as nations on the earth, and they were trying to take out anyone that would stand in their way. And Babylon was the power of that day. And so they really wanted to take down the city of Babylon. They were under siege. 
And we read these words, Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Now listen to me. This king is the king in the city of Babylon. His city is being surrounded by enemy forces, and instead of being on guard, instead of like commanding the troops to get to the walls and defend the city, he decides to have a party. But what does that express about this man? It expresses that he has great confidence in his city. He has great confidence that their city will never fall. Now, historians, archaeologists have, have discovered the ancient ruins of Babylon. And they have discovered that the walls of Babylon were so thick that you could put three chariots side by side on the top of these walls. They were massive walls. They were, they were high, as high as 35 feet tall impenetrable fortresses. It also says that Babylon had a supply that historians say that they had 20 years worth of food in the city for all the inhabitants. And they had diverted the Euphrates River to run from north to south right through the center of the city. So they had as much water as they ever needed. So in Belshazzar's mind, I live in a city that can never be conquered. I'm the Babylonian king who cares if there's guys outside the walls? They're not getting in. They can't get in. There's no way. And we got plenty of food. Let's just have a party. And so this man, in all of his arrogance, all of his, his uh, pride, decides to throw a party. Now, archaeologists have also excavated a large hall in Babylon that's 55 feet wide and 165 feet long that had plastered walls. Likely, this was the hall in which the king and his nobles celebrated that night. Certainly, it could hold such a, a size of a party. Verse 2, under the influence of, of the wine, in other words, they were getting drunk, they were getting sloshed, hammered, whatever your expression is, they were out of their minds, they were just drinking it up. Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, some versions of the Bible say father, it's not his biological father, but father is used as a word to say the king that came before this man, the predecessor. So here in the Holman translation, they do a good job of expressing it in English that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So you have to remember back 70 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar sacked the temple of Jerusalem, and they hauled off with a load of all the, the silver and the gold and all the different things that were used in the house of God for worshiping the king of heaven, Yahweh. But they had put it under lock and key. There was, a, there was some level of respect that Nebuchadnezzar had for this God of Jerusalem, for the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I wonder where he developed that kind of respect. If you've been here for any of the previous teachings in Daniel, you probably will recognize that he had experiences with this God of heaven, the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so he had this respect for that God. So he had not touched. We don't have any kind of record that he messed with these things. They were under lock and key. They were being stored away. Yes, they had defeated the Jewish people, but he wasn't going to use them 
to do other things to show a disrespect for that God. And yet here's Belshazzar saying, hey, remember that Jewish king, that temple we sacked in Jerusalem? Bring out all those gold and silver. We're going to drink on those bowls. We're going to eat and, and we're going to feast. And we're going to just disrespect the items that were in that temple, the temple of those Jews. Bring those in. Verse 3, so they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. You know, we have a record of what those items were. Because in Ezra, after the Jewish people were allowed under King Cyrus, the Persian emperor, to go back to their city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, he actually unlocked these items and said, hey, Take these with you. Go back and bring them back to your temple. And there was a respect for the God of heaven from the king of Persia, Cyrus. And yet right before there, here is the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, disrespecting these items. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 7, we get a record of what they were. Ezra 1, 7, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Methredath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30 of them. Silver dishes, 1,000. Kind of interesting. How many guests were at the party? 1,000. What do you think they were eating from? These silver dishes. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410, and other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shesbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So we have a record of these items in Scripture and what they were, and, and, and Belshazzar decides, take those out of storage and let's party. Let's get drunk. Let's celebrate to our gods. Verse 4, they drank the wine and they praised their gods. Here's the irony. Made of what? Their gods were made of what? Gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What a disrespect for the God who says, I'm not any of those things. I made all of those things. I'm the God, the creator of heaven and earth. And there was a total disrespect. At one point in its history, there were over 53 temples in Babylon to the major deities. There were 55 other smaller shrines to exalt other heavenly beings. 180 altars to Ishtar, an idol of that time. A consort of Marduk. 180 altars to the gods of Nergal and Adad. Plus, there were altars to lesser deities. Babylon was a host of idolatry. Any god and every god could be worshipped in that city. During the time of Belshazzar, there was no respect for the god of heaven. Verse 5. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, 
and his thoughts so terrified him that his hip joint shook and his knees knocked together. I used to watch Scooby-Doo, and there's this, this scene. They'd always encounter some sort of ghost, right, in Scooby-Doo. And I remember that Shaggy's and Scooby's knees started knocking every time they encountered a ghost. That's what's taking place here, but it's taking place in real life. Did you read what, what just happened? A hand shows up. There's no body attached to the hand. It's just the hand, and it starts writing something on the wall of this place where they were celebrating their gods. And the king basically faints. The king called out to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, the wise men, the astrologers. And he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Why does he say third highest? Because his dad's number one, he's number two, so he can only offer up number three. But that's what he's willing to give up. He's willing to give up, I'll give you all the power except for what I have. You can't usurp me or my dad. But I'll give you everything else. I'll give you power. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you position. You know, the purple signifies royal authority, the clothed in purple. The gold chain signifies wealth and prosperity. And the third highest position certainly signifies power and authority. Since Nabonidus was the king, he could only offer the third position. But the king, Belshazzar, knew what motivated these men. What motivated the men who were wise men in Babylon of that day? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What motivates a lot of people today? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So these wise men, verse 8, all the king's wise men came in. Hmm, they hear, whoa, the king's got a problem, and if you can solve this problem, you can have everything you've ever wanted. So boy, oh boy, the calling card was sent out, and here comes all these men. But none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar came, became even more terrified. His face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. Notice something, that man cannot interpret the word of God. Man can't do it alone. You know how many people have a Bible in America? Pretty much they're on every shelf, every household. They're available wherever you want to go. You can read this as a man, but you're not going to understand the true meaning and the significance of what it says unless God opens your eyes. There were wise men in that room, and they could see the writing on the wall, but they could not interpret it. They could not understand its meaning or its significance. Only the Spirit of God can open our eyes to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Verse 10, because of the outcry, of the king and his nobles. The queen, likely this word queen in verse 10, is the queen mother. Remember, it says that he's already in the room celebrating with who? All of his wives, his concubines, all the extra girls. It's like Hugh Hefner. This guy is like, got whatever he wants. He's the king, 
right? He's already got all the women in the room that are his, but there's this woman that walks in because she hears all this ruckus. She hears, like, this king going nuts, like, I'm scared, mommy. So in comes the queen mother. It was likely um, Nabonidus' mom. History says that she was the, the one that really... Um, established the moon god, and she was, she was all about like enhancing Babylon to be a place where the gods were worshipped. So she walks in the room, and she came into the banquet hall, and she says, may the king live forever. That's just a, a way to always introduce yourself when you're walking into the presence of the king. She said, don't let your thoughts terrify you, or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Notice that she knew a few things. She knew of Daniel's past. Remember, this is years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But she was probably old enough. She, was, she had been there when she saw Daniel do what he had done with Nebuchadnezzar, and she knew about it. She said, like, there is a man. But notice one, another thing. Did she recognize that Daniel was a man who had the spirit of the living God of heaven in him? or just the spirit of the gods. You see, it hadn't made it the impact that you would hope that it would have made on the Babylonians. These amazing things that took place. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire? Do you remember Daniel interpreting dreams and revealing visions and their, their meaning to the king? None of these things seem to have an impact that the God of heaven was unique among these other gods. He was, he was above them. He was beyond them. These other gods are worthless. No, they were still worshiping, probably more than ever, all the other gods. But this woman knew. Daniel seems to have a connection to these, the world of the gods. She goes, there's a man in your kingdom. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the diviners, the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and perception. And the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give you the interpretation. In other words, don't be all worried, O son, great king, your majesty. Clean yourself up. You've wet yourself. You're drunk. Dude, there's a person in your kingdom that's under your reign that can solve this. Now, what I find interesting is, do you remember that the king put out the word, I'll give you greatness, awesomeness, all this gold, I'll give you the third highest position, and all the who came running. All the wise men, they're right outside the door waiting for the king to make an offer, and they're like, oh, I can do it, and they run in. Guess who's not there? Daniel. Is Daniel drawn to serve the king by all of those things? No, that's not what motivates Daniel. Daniel's a man after God's heart. Daniel's not about the paycheck. You know, many times I've heard it said, even in the church, well, how come so-and-so gets paid? I want to get paid if I'm going to come serve at a kid's night out. 
you know, I'm a, I need to get paid to be able to clean and vacuum the, the church auditorium. Really? That's what motivates us? A paycheck? Well, then we're no better than these wise men of Babylon. Let's be Daniel. Let's serve the king not out of those motivations, but out of a heart that says, I'm God's servant. And when he needs me, I'm there. No matter what benefit comes my way, I'm not doing it for that. Verse verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you really Daniel? I mean, this king had no idea, no respect for Daniel. Didn't even really know him. Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles? In other words, what was this king just doing? He was disgracing the God of the Jews. And now he's like, really, you're Daniel, one of those Judean exiles? I have no respect for Judean exiles. You're like slaves. We conquered your God that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah. But I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you, Daniel, will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. I think Daniel doesn't like this king a little bit. I think Daniel liked Nebuchadnezzar. I really do. As I studied the book of Daniel, Daniel cared about Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar, for all his stupidity, seemed to have a tenderness for, like, discovering who God was and understanding Daniel's God. Doesn't look like Belshazzar is the same kind of guy. Daniel responds to the king, verse 17. Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Notice Daniel is not motivated by the flesh. He also knows what's about to happen because he can read what's on the wall. So the gifts and the power and the prestige ain't going to last very long. So he could care less. And now he goes into a history lesson. This is like a, this is a cool section. He gives the king a history lesson on his own kingdom. Listen to what he says. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. It was God, the God I'm talking about, my God, the God of heaven that did that. Verse 19, because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. The great God of heaven gave your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, a lot of power. Belshazzar's probably like, duh, I know that. I know who he was. Verse 20, but when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. There's a little choke that went into Belshazzar's throat at that moment because what had he just been doing? He was demonstrating great arrogance. 
he was demonstrating very great arrogance before God, the God of heaven, the God of the Jews, the God of the universe. And he had no respect for that God. Verse 21, he was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. If you want to hear more about that, listen to last week's. Pastor Jeff walked us through that section. He lived with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over the kingdom of men and sets anyone he wants over it. Did you hear that? Who sets rule and authority in our world? It's God. You may think, well, it does, it's my vote. My vote will determine the next governor or president of the United States. No. No, God is orchestrating the events of history. Yeah, do we have a responsibility to vote? Yes. Should we vote? Yes. Do we have a civic duty to do those things? Sure. But if you really think that you can control things, you're greatly mistaken. It's God. That's why we have to pray. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our elections. We need to go before God and plead that God would pick someone that is going to do and, and rule in a way that's going to be with justice and with truth. Verse 22 is, here's the huge lesson to, to this man, Belshazzar. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. This isn't new. This isn't like news to Belshazzar. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar. He even knew that Nebuchadnezzar went crazy until he humbled himself and acknowledged this Jewish God, this God called Yahweh, the, the maker of heaven and earth. He knew all about that. Now here's what's interesting. History records nothing about that. But it makes sense, right? If your king goes nuts... If your president maybe has some loss of memory, maybe isn't quite fully coherent, you hide that a little bit from the general public and the record, right? You don't want your enemies to know your, your leadership is insane, right? Because that's not a good place to, you know, broadcast, right? But the inner circle knew. The inner circle was managing it. Let's try it. Oh, yeah, he's eating grass again over there. He's, he's wandering around. His nails are growing really long. I don't know what to do with this guy. Well, let's just shh, hush, hush, hush. We'll keep the kingdom going until he, something happens to this guy. And that was what taken place in the kingdom. And Belshazzar knew this. The inner circle knew this. And when he humbled himself, what did God do? He restored Nebuchadnezzar to his sanity. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 4? He praised this God. He acknowledged who this God was. This was a moment where these, these guys that came after him should have remembered like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't get all prideful before this God. But Daniel says, no. Instead, verse 23, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. You ready for this? See how many guys can interpret this. Mene, mene, 
Tekel Parson. You got it, right? Now, here's the thing that's kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm not, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but these words are both nouns and verbs in their original language. It's kind of like pound, the word pound. I can say, I'm going to pound you, right? Or I weigh, I'm not going to say how many pounds, right? Yes. But we have those even in our English uh, language, right? We have words that can both be a verb, if they're used a certain way, or a noun. Well, that's what these were. And I think that's what really confounded these men who were trying to look at this and go, well, is it, does it mean the noun or the verb or what's going on here? Like, I don't even understand. I can't even understand what's going on on that wall. And yet Daniel was given the insight as to what, how this referred, what God was saying on that wall and how it, how it had application towards Belshazzar's rule. Mene is an Aramaic noun referring to the weight of 50 shekels. 50 shekels was a weight or measurement used usually in coinage, right? A shekel was a day's wage. So like 50 shekels equal to one and a fourth pounds, but it's also from the verb to number or to reckon. To number or to reckon. So it's both a weight and it means to number or to reckon. Tekel is a noun referring to a shekel, two-fifths of an ounce, just one shekel, not 50 like mene. It is from the verb, though, to weigh. So it also can mean to weigh something. And then parson is a noun meaning a half mina, which is 25 shekels, about two-thirds of a pound. But it's also from the verb to break into two or to divide in half. And so there's this whole expression on the wall and here's what Daniel says, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered your days, the days of your kingdom, and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Well, that's a nice, weighed in the balance and found deficient. Usually if I'm weighed in the balance, I'm found overweight. This guy was found deficient. Verse 28 says, Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. What don't we see there? We don't see Belshazzar being like, Boy, that's a serious message. Maybe I should fall on my knees and beg for forgiveness. Do you see that reaction? Nope. No, nope, I'm a man of my word. I said I'd give him some stuff. Whatever, dude. Like, I don't know about your message, but like, here's your stuff. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. Here's what's cool, and I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but history records this night. This night is in the history books outside the Bible. And it was on the night of the 16th of Tishri on the Jewish calendar, October 12th, 539 B.C. You know what happened on October the 12th and 539 B.C. in Babylon? Babylon was taken without a fight. And this is how it happened. Remember I told you that river Euphrates flowed from north to south through the city? Well, guess what the army that was besieging the city figured out? Let's divert the water. 
let's go ahead and divert the water around the city, and they diverted it to a, a, like a low basin area. It became a lake, right? And as the water receded, the river dried up, and they were able to walk right underneath the wall where the water once flowed. So while, while these guys were partying that night, their whole army came in in the north and the south and came right into the banquet hall where they were at that. And that very night, this man was killed. And without a fight, they just killed the king of Babylon. Now they own the city. Not a single fight took place that night. But it says that the, the power was transferred from Babylonian rule to, and we're about to read it, verse 31, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. At the age of 62. There's so much more I could get into about the 15th of Tishri and how it relates to other events in the Bible. I don't have time to go there. So let's, you can talk to me afterwards and I can fill you in on some cool stuff. But I want to get to three application questions this morning as we close. Because the, the question becomes, the, so what? Like you just went through a whole chapter of the Bible, but what does that mean for my life? And I think God really wants to say a few things to us here this morning through his word. Number one, I have three questions I want you to consider. Number one, if God were to write on your wall, what would he say? If God were to write on your wall, what would he say? You see, Belshazzar had no humble respect for the position God had granted him. No humble respect for the position God had given him. Are we thankful for the blessings and the positions in life that God has granted us? For the health that we have or enjoy? For the families that we've been given? Are we thankful or do we take those things for granted? Do we disrespect the God, the giver of those gifts, as Belshazzar did? You see, he disregarded God's authority over his life. He trampled and misused the things that belonged to God in his life for his own selfish pleasure. What belongs to God in our lives? Everything. Yeah, everything. But let's go through a few of them. Treasure. God has granted us some things in our lives. One of them is treasure. Do we disrespect God by holding the treasure for us instead of giving to him what's rightfully his? I'm speaking to the church right now. Do we withhold our treasure from the living God? And do we use it for our own selfishness? Are we faithful to give God what's due to him? How about our time, right? We think all of our time's our time. No, God asks us to set aside one day a week. He calls it the Sabbath. It doesn't need to be on Saturday. It can be on any day of the week where we devote ourselves to gathering to worship him. This morning, you're in a good spot because you're here. But my challenge is, are we faithful in that? And beyond that, do we give him a portion of every day? Do we, do we make him a priority in our day? Do we give him our time? How about our bodies? Are they not the temple of the Holy Spirit that lives within us? Do we take good care of them? Or do we abuse them? Do we mistreat them? Do we let them just go to whatever, right? God wants us to take good care of the temple that he lives inside of. What about our talents? Are we using them to serve others and to serve God's kingdom? Let me ask you a question. Are you involved with a ministry here at Crossroads? Are you serving in some way or another? God wants you to use a talent to serve the body of Christ. 
Amen? Amen. Get involved. There's a lots, of, lots of opportunities to do that. And finally, how about our testimony, our minds and our hearts? Do we use them to point people to Jesus? Are we using opportunities that God gives us in life to point others to who, the reality of who Jesus is? Second question, when troubling circumstances plague your life, where do you turn for answers and for help? This king, Belshazzar, he turned to the ways of the world. What I know is the, the wise men of this world are going to give me all the answers. Do we turn to the wise men of this world for answers in life, or do we turn to the living God? Do we ask God to come into our heartache, to come into our mess? God, give me wisdom to navigate this situation. God, give me what I need from you, from your hand, God. I, I seek your wisdom over the ways of man. Daniel declares that true life lies and life's true answers lie with the Most High God. Number three, how do you respond to the revelation God has given you? How do you respond to the revelation God has given you? Do you realize God has given us all revelation? This is his revelation. This is his word. And within his word, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too can be saved. Have you responded to that revelation? Have you become a child of God through his amazing grace? Have you had your sins forgiven? Have you confessed before him your insufficiency and pride and asked him to come and cover your sin with the blood that he shed as Andy declared this morning in communion on that cross? He's more than willing to be your rescuer, your deliverer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to respond this morning. But you remember Belshazzar. He did not learn the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's life, from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of God. He didn't humble himself. He didn't repent. He didn't ask God of heaven to save him. No, his heart was hard, and the consequence of that hard heart was death. And it happened that very night. Do not test the God of the heaven and universe. Do not put him to the test. God says, now is the time of my favor. Let today be the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't delay. Bow your knee to the king of kings. Bow your heart. If you're, if you're wrestling with pride, if you, if you have hidden sin here this morning, don't think you can fool God. Don't think you can play games. God is a God of grace and mercy. Yes, he's also a God of wrath and judgment. He is a fair judge, and he will call sin to account. Don't play games. Bow your knee before God and confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from every unrighteous act you've ever done. But you have to have a heart of true confession. The truth is God has written each of us a letter. It's personal. And it's both a warning and a message of hope. This morning, my question, my challenge to us as we respond this morning is this. Have you responded to God's revelation? What has he revealed in your life that needs to be brought before his throne? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your message of Daniel. Thank you for this, this lesson, God, in 
seeing the writing on the wall. God, I pray that um, if there's anyone in here, God, that has been wrestling with pride and arrogance before you, God, maybe even doing things in secret that they know aren't right, you've called them to account this morning. God, I pray that they will bow their knee in this time of response and worship. God, that they will surrender their, their heart and their life fully to you. God, thank you that you're a God of many chances. You love us. Your grace is amazing. It extends way beyond what we deserve. God, but I just pray that we will be the men and women, the young people that you've called us to be and respond to your revelation the way we should in Jesus' name. Amen.